welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week my guest is Arvind Tawari, and he's the Chief Operating Officer of Oxford VR. So after studying a BSc and MSc in Molecular and Cellular Biochemistry at Oxford, Arvind worked in M&A at Rothschild. He then worked in private equity, uh, and in that time he invested over $500 million capital, and that was to accelerate the growth of businesses through strategic clarity. So Oxford VR, he leads on go-to-market and product strategy, and Oxford VR, for those of you who don't know, is a leading digital therapeutics business, and they're focused on treating individuals with severe mental illness. The business is focused on the US, the UK, and actually greater China markets, where it's working with partners to validate and deploy its VR solutions. I hope you all enjoy this one. So Arvind, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, mate? Very well, James. Very well. Thank you for, for having me on today. You're very welcome. Uh, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Arvind? I'm calling you from uh, from from Devon, slightly overcast, slightly rainy Devon, um, but uh, I, I think uh, a lot better than uh, some of my uh, friends and family sitting in Tier Four London at the moment. I think including yourself. <laughs> Absolutely, I am sat smack in the middle of Tier Four in in Surrey, uh, so I'm yeah very jealous that you can uh, get in the good outdoors and meet some people, <laughs> like all of that exciting <laughs> human stuff that we can no longer do. But anyway, I think we've talked to death about coronavirus on this podcast, um, so, so we will move on. Um, so listen, the way we begin these podcasts, mate, as you know, because you've listened to a few, and thank you for doing that, um, is that we get you to tell your story. And so, yeah, it'd be great for our listeners if you could uh, yeah, tell us a bit about your background and how you got to where you are, mate. So I started, uh, started out as a scientist, uh, did, did, uh, did biochemistry, which involved me spending a lot of my time in a, in a white lab coat. I... Um, from there, felt like I was too focused in a very small slice of academia. Um, so did what every uh, biochemist does and went into investment banking um, and spent six years in the city um, in healthcare and consumer mergers and acquisitions, which is advising businesses on, um, on large-scale uh, strategic and fundraising initiatives. Um, gave me great insight into macroeconomics, but from there, realized quite quickly that my, my main interest was uh, on the commercial side in, in, in companies and how they run. Um, so I moved into, into private equity, which is investing uh, into private businesses, um, typically sitting on the board and trying to exit them um, and make a bit of money on the way, on the way during that for your, for your investors. Um, spent, uh, spent a good four years doing that. Um, and actually um, realized I wanted to do something a bit more entrepreneurial, um, really mm-hmm. wanted to be um, one more, you know, one step closer to, to building value in businesses, um, making uh, the day-to-day decisions. Um, I felt I was still one step removed as, as an investor. Um, and the second thing I felt was I wanted to get back into healthcare. So the fund I was at, um, incredible fund, really, really smart bunch of people and a really, really good time there. Um, was, was totally sector agnostic. So I, um, I invested in a, a country club business. I invested in the manufacturer of banknotes, paper for banknotes, um, invested in a financial services business, um, you know, all incredibly interesting business models. Um, but for me, I felt I wanted to get back into the, back into the healthcare side of things. Um, so I, um, I left 
um, towards the end of last year to to actually start my own digital healthcare company up. Um, actually, looking at loneliness and depression in the uh, in the over 65s, so they're kind of the the retirees. Um, and I was also advising a couple of businesses as a as an angel angel investor and advisor. Um, uh, fast forward probably about two months and, and coronavirus hitting, um, uh, there was an incredible opportunity to to join Oxford VR. Um, uh, they'd just gone through a Series A. Um, they had Optum Ventures uh, enter into the capital structure. So this is the US, uh, it's the investing arm of, of United Healthcare Group, so the largest healthcare business on the planet, um, to essentially join them and help them do a bit of M&A and then join them as essentially their chief growth officer, which was helping across all areas of the business, um, from product strategy to go to market strategy to, to, to organization and structure. Um, so that's where I've been for, 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 almost, uh, for almost 12 months. Um, so a sort of a, a windy route from a, from a career perspective. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And it is super interesting, obviously, investment banking, but still drawn to healthcare and obviously a dalliance in entrepreneurship stuff. And, and as you say, you know, moving closer to actually building value in businesses. I'm interested, I suppose, in why healthcare. And I think part of the answer is probably the practicality of, of doing biochemistry and, and that relationship with healthcare initially. But obviously you've made quite conscious decisions to go back into healthcare. You know, as you say, investing in financial services and country clubs and that sort of stuff, but then obviously coming back to healthcare. Why? Yeah, I mean, okay, it's, I don't want it to be a, a marketing slogan, but you know, the purpose um, yeah. of, of really making a difference and helping people. Um, I think when you spend, um, you spend almost 10 years in the city, um, mm. you know, working some very long hours, um, uh, you, you, you very quickly realize that, um, you know, twinned with being a hardworking and ambitious individual, um, you quickly realize that you need to be super passionate about what, about what you're doing, um, in order to dedicate those hours and days and years to, to, to a particular industry. So I think for me, what, what's always drawn me to, to healthcare and actually know most of my friends uh, are doctors or have been doctors, certainly my closest friends. Oh, okay. um, my sister's a doctor. I was actually very close to going into accelerated medicine and actually all my friends have uh, been celebrating the fact that I didn't. Um, <laughs> probably a couple of patients out there that have saved themselves a lot of grief with <laughs> me being a doctor. <laughs> um, so I think there's, there was, there's always been this, this part of me that, that's been drawn towards that purpose of, of helping people. Um, I think you're absolutely right. So for me, I've always been a scientist, particularly enjoyed the biology side of things. And so medicine is that kind of, um, that application of that science or that kind of first principle science. Um, and then I think thirdly, it's a, it's a complicated industry. I think you know, all industries are complicated. I think healthcare is particularly complicated um, because you know, you've got payers, you've got providers, You've got you know, your patients sometimes, or your end user, not uh, your end users, are not sometimes the actual payers of the actual service. Um, you've obviously got all the different different areas, and then you know the last aspect is it's absolutely ripe for for kind of technology enablement. Um, and we're obviously in the last you know last couple of years have seen a massive boom, and it's been accelerated by coronavirus. Um, but I think this kind of perfect storm of all of those characteristics has, has drawn me back into it. Yeah, that's cool. And is that, yeah, you're definitely interested in that sort of stuff uh, from, from what you're saying. 
I'm interested in the investment banking side and I suppose dealing with, you know, those types of consumer health companies, huge amounts of numbers. What did you learn in investment banking that you're sort of applying now C-suite of a company? And the, re- the reason I asked mate is because I think for a lot of people listening in the health tech space, few of them will have done investment banking. Some might be considering it. Some might be thinking of going from healthcare or health tech into that kind of thing. Some might be similarly investment bankers looking to come in, or I suppose a lot of us will just want to know what, what even is it and what sorts of things do you actually do? And I suppose, how does that relate? Because it is interesting. It is an option for people. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I'll, I'll lump the kind of, investment banking uh, and, and the sort of private equity together. So, you know, very much the same, albeit investment banking is about advising businesses on typically buying and selling other businesses, but also going to market and, and fundraising or, or, or sort of partnering up together um, in private equity. Instead of advising someone to do it, you are the individual doing it. So, so you're, you're sort of taking the risk of it not going right. Um, you're taking the benefit of it going right. Um, so I think what, what investment banking and private equity gave me was a, an incredible um, foundation of skills from, from a financial perspective. So, you know, understanding numbers, understanding valuations, um, understanding how you encourage people to get to those valuations, how you encourage people to buy your businesses. Um, it also gave me an incredible set of commercial skills. So, you know, looking at a um, looking at a business in the context of a market is the market growing. What are the drivers for the market? Um, what does the competitive landscape look like? How do you stack up versus competitors? So, really looking at a business within its ecosystem, um, and then particularly private equity um, really taught me about right what does an excellent company look like internally. So, you know, a company isn't just a single department. A company is marketing. It's it's the commercial um, contract side. It's the financial side. It's the people side, the product side, um, the operational deployment side. And actually, what does good need to look like in each of those functional areas to get excellent at the the high-level company perspective? Um, So those, for me, were the set of skills that I picked up in investment banking and private equity. And I suppose with that in mind, then, when you describe Oxford VR as an excellent opportunity, clearly you're looking at it through that lens, right? So tell me about that approach and tell me what was going through your mind. And I suppose a little bit behind the curtain of, of how, did, yeah, how did you assess Oxford VR for it to become, in your mind, a great opportunity? Great question, James. Great question. You should be in the mess of yourself. Um, <laughs> I've been down um, that route, mate. <laughs> um, really good question. So, you know, Oxford VR for me has a couple of incredible things. Um, so I've always been interested in VR. I've always been a gamer. I was that nerdy kid with the N64, um, you know, Zelda, Street Fighter. There's um, still so not a game to this day, by the way, that for me beats either Mario 64 or GoldenEye. Oh, it, yeah. it just doesn't exist. That uplifting quality of whatever it was before then, to, oh, just, it just hasn't happened. But anyway, I digress. I still remember the opening, uh, opening scene of music from GoldenEye. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I could literally walk you through the first level on, Christmas Day. on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway. Um, 
So, uh, so yes, it's, it's a virtual reality as a technology. And so look, virtual reality has been driven by the gaming market, right? But that is, that is where, and I don't know the exact stat, but I'd have thought, you know, 95% plus of VR revenue generation is still in that area. And that's driving um, improvement in technology and content creation. So it, it's always been on my radar. Um, it's incredible technology. And I know we've, we've had a chat and you've, you've used VR before. Again, I think you're probably in the one, two, three percent of the entire world that have used yeah. it. Um, I think you really got to put it on to understand how incredibly immersive it is. Um, so I've always, I've always thought it is the future of technology. It is the future of immersive technology. Um, the, the the second thing that drew me to Oxford VR is the um, the stance we take towards clinically validating our products. So we're based on 20 years of research from um, Professor Freeman, um, who, who runs the psychology department at Oxford, um, and the business spun out of spun out of the university in 2016. So what we do with our VR technology is not only create it based on protocol that we think will work, but we go out there and run studies with our end patients um, to produce the evidence to take to providers and payers to say this will make your patients, uh, this will make more of your patients better, faster, for longer. Um, and so I was really drawn to the mix of academia um, as well as the, the 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 sort of principle of really wanting to help people with things that work and proving it. Um, and I think the third aspect for me was the global nature of, of, of Oxford VR. So um, we have an NH, we have a an RCT running through the NHS right now for a psychosis population. Um, we have a couple of partners coming on board in the states, um, looking at PTSD and depression and anxiety, um, and we have an RCT running in Hong Kong, um, looking at particularly severe social anxiety, um, and so. You know, behavioral health in particular has been close to my heart. You know, everyone's got a story. I've, you know, I found that they've gone into, that has driven them into behavioral health. You know, for me, it's been, you know, personal experiences. It's been volunteering. Um, and and it's also been, you know, a, a aspects of, of academia. So behavioral health, but the idea is that, you know, behavioral health does not know any cultural and geographic boundaries. It is an issue that affects everyone, irrespective of, of, of where you are. Um, and so that global lens that, that Oxford VR has um, was 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 particularly exciting. And I suppose the last aspect is the people. People are just you know, incredibly passionate about what they do, uh, incredibly hardworking from the exec team that I joined to the senior management level, all the way down to you know everyone else in the, in, in the organ. Actually, we are a single organ. Those levels are purely for for administration rather than the way we thought we think of the business. Um, but just an incredible culture of really being behind the mission at Oxford VR. Um, so yeah, that, that, those would be the, those would be the lens through which I kind of ticked off Oxford VR. That's cool, man. So let's move on to what it actually is. So what what is the actual product that you're selling, and who are you selling to? So essentially, who's the product? Uh, sorry, who's the customer, and what's the product? Right. So obviously, I know it's VR. I know that you're obviously in that game. Is it is it that you're selling to consumers? Is it that you're selling to healthcare organisations? Is it that you're encompassing all of that in 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 your product? I mean, tell me about tell me about the specifics. Sure. So so our customers are um, also the patients that that we treat 
are what we call SMIs, so severe um, severe mental illnesses, um, so schizophrenia, bipolar, MDD, autism. Um, those patients reside in one of two places, typically in a healthcare system, inpatient hospitals as well as community settings. Um, they are um, they are therefore treated by hospitals and providers, as as, as we call it. And so our customers are the providers. Um, but you'll you'll know that there's a split. So in the US, you've got payers and provider split. So it's the insurance companies that are the end payers um, that you need to convince. Um, and in the UK, it's it's the NHS, which is you know a, a sort of single payer system. Albeit I, I've certainly come to to understand it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, what are we actually selling? So. Essentially, we are delivering um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CT, cognitive um, therapy, um, to, to, to patients. Um, we've protocolized it in the virtual reality, so the protocol's being delivered um, in a highly engaging way in, in, in the virtual reality, um, which are sort of split between two areas that I think about it. Um, so CBT is all about um, learning skills. Um, that help you deal with those stresses in your in your life that cause the mental health issue in the first place. Um, so we either deliver those skills in a particularly um, engaging way, um, or for example, the product that we've got running through the NHS, um, the NHS trial, um, we put the individual in an incredibly lifelike situation um, to elicit the same physiological and psychological responses. That they that they would feel um, in a real world situation, albeit is it's in a virtual reality and therefore safer. Um, and we then deliver the therapy synchronous to that. Um, so so it's a couple of things there. Yeah, for me, it's incredibly bold and brave to be in that severe mental illness category. And I think there's there's a huge amount of value that you can give there obviously but it's not the easiest sector to be in it's not the easiest part of it to be in because i think a lot of people or a lot of companies a lot of uh, i suppose a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs that have ideas around this it, it's very a lot of it is around the wellness side because of the fact it's far less regulated there's far less that you have to do there's lower barrier to entry in order to get to that stuff but obviously being on that side of the fence it unlocks you know, software as a medical device or indeed the hardware as a medical device. Um, it unlocks that need for evidence, which you guys clearly have that, that kind of built into your culture as a company that you're seeking the evidence behind this, the efficacy, the, you know, all of the, I suppose the dangers that you're aware of the ethics, like all of that stuff, because you're that side of the fence is all built in. So it becomes a much bigger operation, right? It, it, the need for capital is higher. It's much harder to do. And you have to be, a, a, I suppose, a better company, if, if you want to call it that, on that side of the fence. Talk to me about, about that. I'm interested in your view of, I suppose, the sector with, in, well, I suppose, in mind the fact that there aren't many of you on that side of the fence. And those that are clearly have a lot more to do right is that how you view it too do you think it is harder to be on that side uh, i i mean it's definitely longer i think your point is absolutely yeah. right if you're if you're going down this um 
going down what we call the treatment route. Um, it comes with regulatory hurdles, um, which themselves have kind of time and, and cost implications and evidence hurdles. You really got to prove that this stuff is, is as you say, you know, safe and, and effective. Um, and it takes time to do these studies, right? It takes time to, you know, recruit the patients. We want to do them in, you know, robust, big sample sizes. Um, and coronavirus hasn't helped. I mean, we have had, you know, as, as everyone in, in, in this side of the industry would have felt coronavirus has slowed down, you know, protocols for us in the UK and, and in Asia. But, you know, thankfully, they're, they're back online. Um, so, you know, it's so I, I'm not sure whether I'd say it's, you know, whether I'd like to say it's harder, but I certainly think it's, it's got um, it, it's slower to, to, to revenue generation for these businesses. Um, I think what's 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 important is to make sure that when you're um, when you're when you're you know, when you're creating the evidence base and, um, you know, you're in the process of releasing these products to market is to not just go into a black hole run a study, come out the other end and say it works and try and sell it into the market because actually um, the market may have moved um, or you may work out that actually the product market fit just isn't right. Um, you know, for us, outside of the clinical evidence, we need to make sure that this stuff is used, right? We need to make sure um, the clinicians are excited about using it and therefore it needs to fit as seamlessly as possible into their clinical workflow. Um, we need to make sure the patients enjoy using this. That's, um, you know, that is going to drive them um, continuing to what we call, you know, dose themselves, right? This is, we look at this as a medication, right? It's just a digital medication. So we want them to be taking their three times a week dosage. It's got to be interesting, exciting, easy for them to, 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 to use. So you know, whilst we're in this development phase, it's constantly being in touch with our partners and the market and constantly iterating um, the product market, the product market fit, um, and then I think the third aspect in terms, you know, what, why are we doing this? So for us, you know, the, the, the SMI population, there is, there are fewer of us in that side of things, um, but there are increasing number of people moving into it. Um, you know, these are the 5% of the, of the patients that account for 60 to 70% of the total cost. Um, you know, they are the ones that, you know, the U.S. calls them, you know, the persistent super utilizers or revolving door patients here in the U.K. They're very, you know, they're chronic individuals that are, that are very ill and take up a lot of time and resource. And so actually, for, you know, for us, the mission, yes, it will take time to or it'll take longer than it will do to create a wellness product. But the market need is absolutely there. Is absolutely there. Yeah. I, I've got a question around the value actually to these organizations, to these patients, et cetera. And I suppose to the healthcare ecosystem in general, which is obviously there's a health economic argument around what you're doing or else you wouldn't have the scale that you have. And so my question is, do the patients receive better quality of care in a VR environment to treat serious mental illnesses like the schizophrenia, et cetera? And or is it a greater efficiency within the system doing that? Because as you say, there might not be a huge amount of patients, but if they use up a lot of appointment time, I say use up, you know, if 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 they clearly need a lot of appointment time and 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 that side of things, I mean, where where's the efficiency being made if if that is the health economic case? 
Yeah, no, no, good, good question. So on, on a couple of fronts, um, you, you've hit the net on the head. So, you know, the biggest issue, one of the biggest issues in behavioral health is this this gap and growing gap between supply and demand. So yeah. more patients requiring more care from fewer therapists. Per- yeah. Clearly evident on the severe side of things. Um, so for us, if you're able to, and our, our VR therapy, essentially you're automating behavioral health therapy. So for us, it doesn't need a licensed clinician to deliver it. Um, it needs a VR administrator. So all of a sudden, um, you increase the num- you increase the ratio of patients that can be seen by a single therapist. So that that's that's sort of the access point. Um, in terms of the quality of care, so by protocolizing CBT into VR, what you're doing is removing any variability that you get by CBT being delivered by human. So the way you deliver CBT, if you're a licensed clinician, be very different to how someone, um, you know, someone over here in Devon would deliver it and be totally different to how someone in the US would deliver it, right? So, you know, removing that variability for, for me absolutely enhances, enhances the care. Um, the third, the, the sort of third aspect, which, which goes towards enhancing care is we can deliver care through VR that patients just do not otherwise get. So part of the psychosis product is to take individuals in the VR headset into lifelike environments um, and trigger the same responses I was talking about and trying to overcome their, their avoidance and safety behaviors. Um, that would just not be um, feasible for a patient or for every patient, certainly um, you know, in the UK. How do you get, you, know, you don't have enough therapists and two, it's probably not safe to take some of these individuals into an environment that causes them to, you know, to stress and react, right? So you're sort of delivering care that can't be delivered otherwise. Um, and then I think the last aspect is, you know, the important thing about CBT is not only the skills that you learn, but it's then the transfer of those skills into a real world environment. That, that's the end goal, right? Um, and again, in VR, what we can do is teach them the skills put them in a real world or you know, a replicated real world environment um, and drive a higher quality of transfer of those skills into the real world when they do get discharged, when they do leave their homes. Yeah, definitely. And you've, you've mentioned a few times, obviously, the, the well, there's a high fidelity nature of, of, of this type of VR, right? It is so, so, so high fidelity. It can be so real for people. I'm, I watched... Um, a roundtable by the XRSI, so the XR Safety Initiative, talking about the the regulation in the field, basically, to, or lack thereof. And actually, you know, with technology moving so quickly and regulators coming up behind, there's actually a gap there between what VR and AR can actually do versus what's actually being regulated. So it ends up being quite a responsibility, I suppose, on on the companies that are doing this to make sure that they are making things safe that patients are protected all of those different things it sounds to me like you guys take that quite seriously and i think being at that severe mental illness end that must be that must be one of one of the things near the top in terms of when you're creating content certainly i mean how do you guys create your content for for that side of things um and is it is it built with clinicians by clinicians patients and yeah, I'm interested on your views on, on I suppose, the, the safety element of, of the market, uh, again, I suppose. We, we take that incredibly, incredibly seriously. It's probably the most important thing, it's sort of the fundamental building block of our, of our, um, of our business. Um, 
So our product starts, and what, what differentiates us is our, our product starts um, with the clinicians. Um, mm. So we've got um, a Professor Freeman um, who, who, who sits on our board, who we work very, very closely with in designing the clinical protocol. Um, we've then got our in-house group of clinicians, um, you know, very, very experienced in taking clinical protocol and uh, creating VR design. Um, who then work very closely with our designers to turn it into something that is engaging, safe, efficacious. Um, the second aspect is when once we have created um, a new piece of uh, a new piece of content, a new piece of technology, we then go through a very rigorous um, you know, three-stage study with each, with each of our partners. The first of which is called an acceptability phase, which is essentially giving it to clinicians um, before you give it to patients and um, making sure that they are absolutely happy that this is something that can be delivered to patients that is safe um, and, um, and actually doesn't yet opine on whether it's going to be effective. It's purely, is it safe? Um, the next step is the feasibility. So how you know, can this technology be delivered in situ, into the field, right? Whether it's a hospital, whether it's a community setting, um, and that starts to opine on whether the actual technology will be effective in treating the individuals. And then we have our third effect in the stage, which is very much talking about, you know, is it effective? Um, it's a really good point that you that you highlight because there are there are differences in characteristics between, um, you know, seriously mentally mentally ill individuals and and people at the less severe end. Um, one of the key aspects is, um, you know, te VR technology is now becoming lighter and cheaper to the point where at-home VR therapy is absolutely something you know businesses are, are, are working on and, and, and putting into the market. What we have seen from um, what we have seen from you know discussions with our with our partners is um, you know se severe patients either reside in hospitals, so at-home delivery just isn't you know doesn't exist for them, or if they are being treated in community settings, um, actually we are not using the VR at home when they go home. We're delivering them in the community settings. Um, they may have a non-licensed clinician delivering the actual VR technology, but they will be, there will be clinicians in the building. So if they go through an incident, um, you know, they are observed and it's safe. Um, so there's a big difference. You're absolutely spot on. There is a difference between, you know, we do have some new at home VR content that we are delivering, but we're very, very cognizant of actually um, you know, first and foremost, are the patients suitable to receive receive VR technology at home? It's interesting that you put the clinicians first in that as well, because I was going to ask you about clinician appetite for this. I've had, um, I don't know if you know Sarah Tiko from Hatsumi, and I've actually had someone from the NHS that has implemented VR in their organization on this podcast as well to talk about kind of adoption and appetite and sort of that that demand side as well to mm -hmm. try to try and figure out you know how to act how did this how does this actually get adopted obviously starting with clinicians means that a huge barrier has already been overcome right in the sense that when you're then having those conversations about adoption it's immediately i suppose and initially defensible by those for whom it matters most i.e the people whose license is on the line when they use it and i think that is su such an important point that when you're beyond that threshold of you're in treatment, basically, that obviously, yes, there are the 
software as a medical device, regs and MDD, whatever you want to call it. And yes, you have to do those those kind of box sticking exercises as the way that that you've developed it and the intended use and all that sort of thing. But I suppose practically speaking, clinicians, as you as you rightly pointed out a couple of times, you know, have to be not only comfortable, firstly, no harm, but actually excited as well. It has to, it has to work. It has to be better than than almost well, almost better than that one to one therapy in order for them to accept it, right? And I think the way that you're obviously building it means that you're going to be a long way to getting that adoption when you when you go for those conversations. <clears throat> but I think my final question in the two minutes that we've got left would be around well we're towards the end of the year we could call it a prediction for 2021 or we could just call it your views on the market your views on the future of vr i remember i remember this time last year think wondering anyway wondering if if this was going to be a breakthrough year for vr if we were going to see quite a lot of adoption i think we have i think we have seen a lot of adoption this year do you think that adoption is going to increase next year? Do you think we're going to see more VR in terms of actual therapy? Um, I suppose linked nicely to what you guys do. You guys expecting quite a lot of scale next year. Um, or I suppose the market in general, right, globally. Do you think this is something that we're really going to see kicking off next year? I, I absolutely do. I absolutely mm. do. And I've seen some, um, and that's not, uh, that's obviously not me from a biased perspective saying it, you know, you can point Inside to some trading, very... Mate. <laughs> 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 wink, wink, it's going to do quite well. <laughs> um, I think you, um, you know, you can point to some very tangible parts in the market. So, so this year, you know, in a single year, within a couple of months, um, there were two, if not three, new hardware manufacturers entering into the market, um, which, is, which is massive. Um, Secondly, there has been uh, there are a lot more VR businesses coming coming to market, um, and they're getting funding. They're getting funding from smart people. Um, so you know the views on the market going forward must must be positive. Um, I think you know it's it, it, again I point to you know it's incredibly immersive technology that you cannot really understand until you've actually put it on. And I think what's happening now is the technology is just getting faster lighter and cheaper and i think once we once um you know once we make substantial wins across those metrics i i think you'll find um i think you'll find adoption rates rising i think clinical institutions are um a lot more aware of the uh, the benefits that technology enablement can deliver them so they're a lot more aware now of new digital solutions entering into the market there are a lot of r&d budgets that we are finding in, in in our partners which are growing so i think that'll drive adoption as well um and then i think for for vr in particular um you know behavioral health has has always been an issue um and you know coronavirus um you know sadly has accelerated um accelerated um uh, you know people's awareness of it um, which is a positive right i mean that that's a silver lining we see that it's always been an issue this has now just brought it very much to the forefront of, of people's minds and you know for me i absolutely love the fact now that you know i can speak to people and um you know people will now absolutely put their hands up and say ah do you know what i think i i suffer from depression or do you know what i'm going through a massive period of anxiety or do you know what i'm actually seeing a psychologist um I love the fact that people are totally open about that. Um, for me, that just means the market's progressing. Um, and I absolutely think, you know, 2021 is going to be a better year for it. 
than, than 2020, um, you know, coronavirus permitting. Awesome. And Arvin, final, final, final question would be, we get a lot of people that listen to this podcast from, you know, hospital groups to clinicians, to patients, to corporates, to investors. I mean, have you got any asks of our audience before we wrap up? Any ask of you? <laughs> this could be the shameless Oxford VR. Um, Oxford VR this, is, this is exactly why I do this bit, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really kind of you. Um, no, look, I, I would say, so I'd say to everyone, take, take your mental health really seriously. Um, and there's all sorts of things you can do. It's not just, um, you know, it's not just psychological intervention. It's eating better. It's exercising. It's speaking to people. It's being a part of a community. And there are a huge number of resources. So I would absolutely implore everyone to take it as seriously as they do their physical health. Um, the second aspect would be to, um, you know, get out there and try some VR, right? Put a headset on um, really, really, you know, it doesn't need to be Oxford VR stuff. Um, it'd be great if it if it was, but just get out there and and just um, really work out what this latest technology is. Um, and then to providers, yeah, look, you know, if you're you know if you're looking for clinically validated technology, um, it happens to be VR. But for us, we absolutely think us think of ourselves as a piece of the broader technology spectrum. Um, if you're looking for clinical clinically validated technology to you know support access drive outcomes, reduce healthcare costs, um, you know, please get in touch with us. Um, we, we're looking for partners, um, you know, in the US, in the UK and in Asia. Um, so we are, yeah, we're very, very open to inbounds. Amazing. And for everybody listening, I'll stick Arvin's details in the description of this episode. So Arvin, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure, dude. Thanks very much, James. Really appreciated your time. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.